Two weeks ago, we began a series of lessons on what have been called traditionally the seven sins, the seven deadly sins. I'll remind you a little bit about the backdrop, the background of this listing of seven deadly sins. The list was originally compiled by a, a monk, a vagrius. This is in the second half of the fourth century. They wanted to get away from the city to isolate himself, become a monk, as we understand, out in the desert, away from the distractions, away from the temptations, the worldliness of, of modern city life. That was, again, in the fourth century. But he discovered something. The same temptations that he struggled with in the city, he still was experiencing them out in the desert. And so he compiled a list of some of the particular things that he struggled with, some common struggles. And that list was circulated among other monks and people and and was later tweaked to come to this traditional listing of the seven deadly sins. Listed from least to greatest threat as they as far as they are a threat to our lives. Begins with lust, gluttony, greed, sloth, wrath, envy, and finally pride. Again, listed in the order of some minds of from the least to the greatest threat. I'd like for us to, we looked at sloth two weeks ago. I'd like for us to consider the first in this list. Lust, lust. We'll do a scripture study with you this evening uh, from James chapter 1. I invite you to open your Bibles there. James chapter 1. We'll look at verses 13 through, through 18. This section of scripture has to do with the real source of temptation. Who is to blame as far as our struggle with temptation? And man has always played the blame game, right? It began in the garden. You're very familiar with this. When Adam and Eve partook of the forbidden fruit and God confronted them about it. First he confronted Adam and Adam said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. So he tried to blame Eve and so God confronted Eve. Eve responded, the serpent deceived me, and I, and I ate. And that is true. The serpent, the tempter, did tempt Eve. But she was the one that succumbed to the temptation, as did, as did Adam. But that age-old blame game is still being played, pursued today. Many want to blame environment, or heredity, or God, or anybody, or anything else as to why they struggle with certain things. But James says, you can't blame God. So let's look at this passage line by line and see what it says about this sin of lust. Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Notice it says, let no one say when he is tempted. It's not if he is tempted, but when he is tempted. There's a certainty when it comes to the universal struggle against temptation and sin. 
And temptation in, in, this, in this section of Scripture, verses 13 through 18, is the temptation to do evil. You see, earlier in this same chapter, James talks about trials. And that has to do with the outward circumstances of life. And count it all joy when you fall into various trials. And, and he speaks to, in verses 2 and, and following, how that enduring these trials builds perseverance, which leads to spiritual maturity. And so he speaks of trials, outward struggles in the first few verses. But now he's talking about the inward impulse to do evil. So it's outward trials versus inward struggles. And James is now considering one's inward solicitation to evil. And he says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. God neither sins nor encourages anyone to sin. And James sets out to demonstrate it's impossible for a holy God to be responsible in any way for man's inward struggle with sin. So if you want to play the blame game, James is saying it's not God's fault. It's not God's fault. He's not tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone with evil. If God is not the source of our temptation, who or what is? Look with me to verse 14. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Now, in other passages, we see that Satan is called the tempter. But that which enables him to tempt us, James teaches us, is our own weaknesses. So the sole source of temptation is the individual. Satan's not even mentioned here in this text because James is trying to focus on our own personal responsibility when, when it comes to this matter of temptation. Each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires. Consider that word. King James has the word lust, but the word is desires. It's translated differently in several different passages. I want to give you some background on this word. It means a longing. In fact, the verb form means to set, apart, set one's heart upon that is longed for rightfully or otherwise. So it's, yes, it's used in a negative sense, and we'll get to that in just a moment, but it also has a positive usage. A longing after. And it can be a, a good longing after. Uh, W.E. Vine summarizes this word saying that this word denotes strong desire of any kind. The various kinds being frequently specified by some adjective. In other words, the context reveals whether this is a good longing uh, after or, an, or a bad longing after. Occasionally, this is used in a good sense. Let me give you a few examples. Jesus, speaking his, to his disciples, said, I have earnestly desired, and there's the word, to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So I have, I've had this longing. I've had this strong desire to share this Passover with you before I suffer. And he's speaking of the cross there. Well, that was a good longing, wasn't it? He wanted to be with them. He wanted to, to share in the Passover meal 
with his disciples before he went to the cross. Paul uses this word, Philippians 1.23. I am hard pressed between, between the two. And the idea is to, to stay here and minister. To sh- continue to share the gospel of Christ and encourage Christians. Or to depart and be with Christ. To depart and be with Christ, he says, which is far better. I have a desire to depart and be with Christ. And that word desire there is the same word that James uses. But here we see it's a positive use of the word. He desires, he has a longing for, a strong desire to go to heaven, to be with Christ. So that's a good thing. Just as when Paul uses the same word in 1 Thessalonians... And he tells these Christians there that we've been taken away from you for a short time, but we are eager to see your face with great desire. And there's that same word. So he's looking forward to seeing these Christians again. He has a longing to see them. And so these are positive uses of this word. It's a desire. It's a longing for that can be legitimate and can be good in and of itself. But most of the time in Scripture, in the New Testament, this word is used in the negative sense. A strong desire that's been perverted, unrestrained, misdirected. And that's how James uses it here. Each man is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. One writer suggests that in this type of usage, it means these are natural impulses unnaturally expressed. The appetite for food, for example, is not sinful. It's a part of how how we're made. But when it's abused in a manner that's displeasing to God, that's when it's wrong. Sexual intimacy is a God-given desire. But what makes it wrong is if it's, it's sought out to, uh, to be satisfied in a way in which displeases God, is against His, His will. So this word can refer to natural impulses, if you will, but perhaps unnaturally expressed is not as good as saying that they're wrongly expressed. Dante said that sin is love gotten badly out of fix. The seven deadly sins are loves that have been perverted, attached to the wrong objects, the wrong, for the wrong reasons, and in the wrong ways. That's what makes these desires sinful. When they're attached to the wrong objects for the wrong reasons, in the wrong ways. Each one is tempted when he's drawn away from his own desires. Drawn away and enticed, James uses those words. And for you hunters and fishermen, they have usage in those sports. Drawn away is a hunting term describing the hunter coaxing prey from its cover into the snares, Vincent says. Of course, what came to my mind is Hunter, you know, having that patch that's been planted for the deer, waiting for that deer to come out from the cover into his line of sight. That's being drawn away. 
The deer leaves the safety of the woods and comes out into the open to feed upon this, this nice bait that's been placed before him. That's the same imagery that, that, that James uses. Each man is tempted when he's drawn away, drawn away from, from God, from virtue, and, it, and drawn away to this bait that comes from his own desires. After all, that deer is hungry. It sees something good to eat. A natural desire, but draws him away from safety. Enticed. So I've read as a fishing term, meaning taken with the bait. It is, describes like a fish swimming in a straight course and then drawn away, drawn to this bait that looks delicious. After all, the fish has that desire of hunger and of something, wanting something to eat and so sees what he doesn't realize initially is food, but it has a hook in it. But that fish changes direction. It goes toward the bait. And the same imagery. Each man is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. James is saying that we supply the bait that Satan uses to hook us and to trap us. Let's look at an age old example. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 3 for a moment. Genesis chapter 3, back to the garden. I want to read beginning in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 3, the first uh, temptation and sin. Beginning of verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? See, he's casting doubt and trying to cast doubt in her mind as to what God has said. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent just comes out, Satan comes out with just a flat out lie, as we would call it. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. And he also gives the impression that God is trying to hold something back from her. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God Knowing good and evil. Now look with me at verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food. That it was pleasant to the eyes. And a tree desirable to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her. And he ate. And we've often, I've often used this passage to illustrate the teaching of 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. And the avenues of temptation, as we have called them. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And how Satan tempts Eve, she is tempted along these same three avenues of temptation. But what I want to underscore here is that in and of themselves... It's not wrong 
After all, look at this. She saw that the tree was good for food. She saw the fruit of this tree, whatever fruit that it was. And it, it, she saw that it could satisfy a need, a longing, a hunger in her life. Lust of the eyes or a lust of the flesh. That it was pleasant to the eyes. The fruit looked good. It wasn't rotten. And so not only would it quench her hunger, it would, it would quench her, her taste. It looked good, lust of the eyes. And a tree desirable to make one wise. If I eat of it, then I'm going to be wise like God. In and of themselves, not wrong. It wasn't wrong to be hungry. It wasn't wrong to try to, to satisfy that hunger with the fruit of the trees of the garden. And it wasn't even wrong, per se, to, to gain some advantage. To be wise, is it, is it wrong to want to be more wise? But obviously what made this wrong is it was against the revealed will of God. God had said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So you see how these legitimate desires, if you will, were twisted. They were attached to the wrong thing in the wrong way by that temptation of Satan and so caused Adam and Eve to sin. Satan tempted, but Eve supplied the bait. Eve supplied the bait. These desires were wrong because they violated the commandment of God. Eve listened to the serpent and made the decision to partake, even though God had said not to. Well, what if we give in to the temptation and take the bait, if you will? Verse 15 of James 1. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. When wrongful desires are acted upon, sin is committed. And the wages of sin is death. Sin, when it is full grown, these are the wages of sin. It brings forth death. So who's responsible? Who's to blame for my struggle with temptation? My struggle with sin? James is saying it's not God. He doesn't, he's not tempted by evil, nor does he use it to tempt people. But each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. It, the, the blame falls on the individual. Because each of us supplies the bait. That Satan wants us to use, to use those even God-given desires and to fulfill them in a way that he has said not to. So James' next words are this, verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. He's calling upon his readers to stop their current practice of being deceived over who is really responsible for their sins. Do not err in, in accusing God of being responsible for your sin. I can't help it. God made me that way, some might say. James is saying, you can't blame God. Accept the responsibility 
yourself? Well, the question might be raised then, well, where is God in all this? Look at the next verse, James 1, 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Where is God in all this? God is the one who gives you good things. God provides only good, useful, practical, and perfect, nothing lacking in them gifts. He's clear that God only gives good things, not evil, because He is good. That's His nature. And James alludes to the fact how God is the creator of all things. He's he's the father of lights. The sun, the moon, the stars. God created them all. And just as the sun is the source of light to our world, God is the eternal source of good and not evil. Because with God there is no variation or shadow of turning. Perhaps in the mind of of these words is how the sun rises and sets through the course of a day. And if we're standing outside on a sunny day like this, we see our shadow lengthen and shorten as to the position of the sun. Or perhaps there's also this, the sun perhaps being hidden at times and casting shadows from the clouds that are in the sky, between the earth and the sun. So the light from the sun, the moon, the stars may vary, but James says God doesn't. Only good comes from Him. Only good. In fact, the greatest gift that He's ever given is Jesus. And the opportunity to respond to Jesus through an obedient faith so that our sins can be washed away and we can be born again. And James even alludes to that greatest gift in the next verse. Notice with me, verse 18. Of His own will, speaking of God, the giver of every good and perfect gift, of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of firstfruits Of his creatures. Now, watch this. Brought us forth is the same wording that James uses earlier in speaking of of sin. And when that desire has conceived, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it is when it is full grown, brings forth death. Sin gives birth to, if you will, death. God brings us forth by the word of life to life. The word of truth to to life. It's the same imagery, but he's showing the contrast here. Sin births death while God gives humanity the chance to be born again unto life. And it's a stark contrast here. And I believe it's an illusion. He brought us forth to life. How? I believe it's an illusion to when we are given that new life. We began with this passage this morning 
So we'll end with it tonight. Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. That's when he brought us forth to new life. Sin brings forth death. God brings forth life when, we're, when we submit to him. You see, God is not the source of temptation. He's the source of the greatest gift of all, our salvation. He's the instigator of salvation, of his own will, he says. And if I'm to be one of God's spiritual first fruits, I must learn to accept responsibility for my part in this temptation to sin. It's not God's fault. I'm the one that supplies the bait. I'm the one that makes the decision to take hold of that bait. I'm the one that, that twists those desires to be satisfied in ways that are not pleasing to God. I am responsible for succumbing to temptation. And I must learn to confess my sin and turn from it or return to the Lord when I fail. Because the rest of the story is that, yes, we all struggle with temptation and we struggle with giving in to it. We sin. But God loves us so much that even though it's, it's our fault, we supplied the bait. He has provided the way of forgiveness. He wants to bring us forth to life and forgiveness and the strength to ultimately overcome temptation and sin through Christ. One writer says, Although humans struggle between embracing evil desires or the will of God, the Creator voluntarily chose to establish a plan for their redemption, including the most perfect gift of His Son. Every good and perfect gift comes down from above, including the greatest gift of all, the gift of Jesus, who died on the cross because we struggle with temptation and we sin. We fall short of the glory of God, but he's even provided the, the means of redemption if we'll just choose to accept it on his terms. Yes, lust, a deadly thing because it leads to sin. But God loves us so much that though we struggle with it, He's provided the means to eternal life through the gift of His Son, Jesus. If you want to accept that gift on His terms tonight, to be brought forth from the watery grave of baptism to new life, if you need the prayers of the church on your behalf, won't you let that be known and won't you come right now as we stand and sing?